Japan's government is pretending that the danger in Fukushima Daiichi's evacuation zone is a thing of the past and is trying to force evacuees back into their homes. But when we hear what has happened to some of the cleanup workers on site and the implications for the public, these workers had inhaled very tiny particles of insoluble cesium in very microscopic forms of glass into their lungs, and the body can't expel those. Could some of the public have been exposed to some amount of this also? When you hear questions like that, that's how you know that you are in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we interview Nancy Faust of Simply Info on her organization's fifth annual report about what's really going on at Fukushima Daiichi. It names names, cites data, provides footnotes, and translates the tech into normal English that anyone can understand. And we have a discussion with Nuclear Hot Seat's European correspondent, Sean McGee, on three radiation spikes in the last six months that have been recorded across Europe. Sean's done the multinational research, which he explains, and comes to some conclusions about the sources of this fresh radioactivity and what may be behind the data about it suddenly disappearing from official European radiation monitoring sites. What's interesting is how his research is being proven out by the nuclear industry, governments, and mainstream media sources. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report on the latest reportable problems at U.S. nuclear reactors, plus news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than appeared last week in the combined programs of John Oliver, Trevor Noah, and Stephen Colbert. Happy Fukushima anniversary to you, too. But all of our information is coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 14, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out in Japan, where at the Great East Japan Earthquake Memorial Service held in Tokyo on March 11, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, in his entire speech, did not use the term nuclear accident once. The criticism has been furious, especially by Masao Uchibori, who has been governor of Fukushima Prefecture since 2014. Uchibori expressed his criticism of Abe during a news conference on March 13. Specifically, he said, To Fukushima residents, it felt strange that Abe left the phrase nuclear accident out of his speech. 
One must not ignore important terms such as nuclear plant accident or nuclear disaster when referring to what has happened in Fukushima. The government-sponsored memorial service has been taking place every year since 2012, and until last year, Abe spoke about the nuclear accident during his speeches. I liken this to Trump commemorating the Holocaust with a statement that did not once mention Jews. Remember, everyone, history is written by the winners, and when they start excluding your interests, it's time to pay attention and take action. Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, the operators of not only the failed nuclear reactors, but also the cleanup, quote-unquote, at Fukushima Daiichi, has had another setback and has had to abort yet another robotic expedition shortly after beginning. The company began preparations for a probe in the morning, but had to cancel the operation when it became clear that the images on a camera placed inside the reactor were not showing up in the control room. Oops! TEPCO is planning to investigate the glitch and relaunch the inspection at some point on Wednesday, or sometime thereafter. According to a statement sent to me and attributed to Fairwinds Energy Education, if TEPCO can't consistently operate something as complex as a robot, then maybe they shouldn't be operating nuclear reactors, one of the most complex technologies known to man and woman. Remember those mountains of green plastic trash bags filled with radioactive soil and debris from Fukushima's decontamination attempts? At a temporary storage site in Minamisoma, Fukushima Prefecture, around 1,000 bags of contaminated soil will be opened and made into construction foundations and their radiation levels measured. The experiment will be done to check, among other things, whether the radiation exposure dose remains at the yearly limit of one millisievert or less. Japan's Ministry of the Environment used to allow for reuse of debris with a limit of 3,000 becquerels per kilogram. But as of June of last year, they made it even worse by deciding on a policy of reusing contaminated soil with 8,000 becquerels or less per kilogram in structures such as soil foundations for public works projects. Minamisoma's mayor, Katsunoba Sakurai, protested loudly, saying, If they don't use the 3,000 becquerel limit, it is inconsistent. It doesn't make sense for a ministry that is supposed to protect the environment to relax the standards it has set. The radiation limit for this project has now been lowered from 8,000 becquerels per kilogram to 3,000 becquerels per kilogram. Good going, mayor. On the financial side of nuclear... An international arbitration panel has ordered Mitsubishi Heavy Industries to pay the owners of the San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant, Southern California Edison, and two others, $125 million for defective steam generators supplied to the plant in 2009 and 2010. The International Chamber of Commerce capped the award at the liability limit contained in the contract to supply the components. But even as Southern California Edison is receiving $125 million, the tribunal ordered them to pay Mitsubishi $58 million in legal fees and costs. This results in a net award of about $52 million to Southern California Edison. And at the same time, it's the citizens of Southern California who are paying for the decommissioning of San Onofre. 
And Japan's nuclear and electronics company, Toshiba Corporation, said it was considering selling its money-losing Westinghouse operations in the U.S. Largely because of Westinghouse's work in the nuclear business and its attempts to expand into nuclear construction and services with more business in decontamination, decommissioning, and plant projects. As a result of the drop in its stock price, Toshiba faces the risk of being delisted on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Over to the U.S., where 13 nuclear resistors from the Pacific Life community were arrested at the Kitsap Bangor Trident Naval Base for blockading the main gate. The base is the Pacific home port of the Trident Nuclear Ballistic Missile Submarine Fleet, the Nuclear Submarine Fleet. More than 40 people joined together for prayer before peacekeepers safely blocked the incoming traffic and several banners were stretched across the road reading, War is Immoral and Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Seven people were ticketed and released for pedestrian leaving the curb. Six others, who crossed over the marked property line onto the federal side, read sections of the Nuremberg Principles out loud. This is a set of guidelines to determine what constitutes a war crime. Then they were arrested by military police and charged with trespass, then received ban and bar letters before being released. We'll have more on nuclear weapons next week when my guest will be Global Network's Bruce Gagnon. And now it's two weeks worth of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, duck, (coughs) and cover report. Not a reactor, but a definite NRC issue. This is going back to February 11. Leaking uranium-235 source with contamination in public areas. The source, I guess that's the radioactive material, was loaned to Duke University through Los Alamos National Laboratories for experimentation, research, education, and calibration purposes. But during an experiment, the source integrity was compromised and assumed to be leaking. It was also determined that the actual breach of the source occurred on February 11th, But it wasn't reported until the 15th, which showed that Duke was not up to standard on its standard operating procedures. Contamination was discovered outside the anticipated areas where contamination was suspected, including on a toilet seat in the residence of a Duke physicist researcher. No word on how the radioactive material got there. There is an ongoing investigation. (coughs) At Browns Ferry in Alabama on March 2nd, there was notification of an unusual event declared, labeled a non-hostile security event due to introduction of contraband into the protected area. That's all the NRC had to say about it. So it took Evan Bellinger for the Times Daily in Montgomery, Alabama to report that the contract worker was able to get a small caliber handgun past security at Browns Ferry Nuclear Power Plant. Let's hope the event, as billed, remains unusual. (coughs) Let's just rip through them. There was a loss of safety function at Susquehanna in Pennsylvania on March 8th because of human performance error. Dang pesky humans. A hot shutdown or scram at Riverbend in Louisiana on March 10 due to rising reactor pressure caused by the closure of a control valve. At Byron in Illinois on March 5th, 
An ultrasonic test on a previously repaired reactor vessel penetration did not meet acceptance criteria. Problems at Callaway in Missouri, Waterford in Louisiana, Clinton in Illinois, but saving the best for last. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none nuts on a week. At the Zion Nuclear Reactor in Illinois on March 10, a potentially contaminated individual was transported to a medical facility. That sounds appropriate, except the contracted employee was injured by being struck in the back by a cable. They required off-site medical treatment, and it was decided that this event was to be treated as a potentially contaminated injured individual being transported to an off-site medical facility. Except there was no radiation involved. It was a cable. He was not in a radiologically hot area. There was no reason for doing this. But that's what one of those nuclear experts decided on. So not only was this injured individual transported in an ambulance, a radiation protection technician and a radiation protection supervisor went along for the ride in the ambulance. Radiation surveys were then performed inside the ambulance, in the hospital, and on the individual, and radiation was never detected. That's good news, except except it was never a radiological incident. Just like the nuclear industry to look for radiation in all the wrong places. And that's why the nuclear experts at Zion in Illinois are this week's Nuclear hot seed, none nuts on a week. Internationally, South Korean low-cost carrier Jeju Air has decided not to use Fukushima Airport for planned chartered flights between South Korea and northeastern Japan due to crew fears of radiation, this according to officials. Starting this month, the carrier will switch to Sendai International Airport in Miyagi Prefecture to operate flights between Incheon International Airport and northeastern Japan. Airline staff and stewards expressed health concerns over flights to and from the Fukushima Airport. And First Nations tribes located in Canada near Ontario are standing united against nuclear industry plans to truck 23,000 liters of highly radioactive liquid from Chalk River in Ontario across the international border to the Savannah River site in South Carolina using public roads and bridges. The Anishinaabek Nation is standing with the Iroquois Caucus in opposing this transport through Anishinaabek Nation and Iroquois territories. Anishinaabek Nation Grand Council Chief Patrick Madabi said, Water is the lifeblood of Mother Earth. Why would we put our precious resource in jeopardy? A spill into any of the waterways would have a tremendous impact on the Great Lakes. Millions of people would be affected on both sides of the border. There has been deep concern and many echo chamber interpretations of the recent spate of radiation spikes recorded in Europe. They've shown up in Norway, Sweden, Poland, the Czech Republic, Germany, France, and Spain. Questions abound. Is the radiation all from the same source? Different sources? Why has there been no media coverage? And how has data gone missing from the EU's public radiation monitoring website? Is this a cover-up, or nuclear industry spin, or just basic incompetence? 
Nuclear Hot Seat's European correspondent, Sean McGee, has been running down the leads and putting the story together. Here's our recent conversation about it, starting with the prime suspect in the case. Sean, what and where is Norway's Halden reactor? Norway's Halden reactor is on the southern tip of Norway, and it borders with Sweden, and it's very close to the coast. There have been a number of incidents in Europe where radiation spikes have been registered. This is in about the last six-month period of time. These problems started out with the Halden reactor last October. What do we know about what happened at that time? Towards the end of October, there was、uh, certainly an issue with the reactor, and there was a report to the Norwegian Radiological Protection Agency, who oversee and have been overseeing the reactor for a couple of years because of certain problems that it's been having. Now they were told initially that there was no problem, but after the initial report. The NRPA, the Norwegian Radiological Protection Association, turned round and said that they had received a call 24 hours after an incident occurred. What happened then is the regulatory agency then decided to oversee all the issues that were going on. There was certainly an iodine release. There's been some confused reports about this. Initially, it was because some rods were being removed, and the rods themselves were producing iodine. Two different types of radioactive iodine that have been reported. No other isotopes reported, although they may have been created. But within the reactor itself, while that situation was being dealt with, within the reactor itself, there developed what the IFE, who are the people that own the actual reactor and operate it. They turned around and said that the reactor was in a special condition, so the nuclear regulatory authority in Norway went there and started looking at the issues. Now they had to open the vents of the reactor because they were worried about the build-up of the hydrogen, which actually was the same problem that occurred in Fukushima. The hydrogen built up and then it exploded. So the vents were opened, but when they opened the vents, obviously they released various isotopes into the atmosphere. So that was kind of that deal, and all the way up to December, there was a reporting process. There was very hands-on. The NRPA were very much、uh, dealing with the situation and producing a report as well. I find it interesting that in the research I did, the official announcement said that the personnel at the plant had suffered only a small dosage of radiation, which, to my mind, is like saying that they were a little bit pregnant because there's no such thing as an insignificant dose; it all counts. But moving forward on these mystery releases that have been showing up in Europe, in January there was another report, or there was other evidence that showed up that there had been a radiation release, and again, this showed up all over Europe. What can you tell us about that one? When that story broke, I went to what they call Eurodep, which is the radiation monitoring system, which the public can access. There is also another one which the nuclear industry uses that's more detailed. But I went to the public one, and I tracked. The actual source to somewhere near Hungary, and there was other evidence that I'd、uh, looked at within this system to do with the isotopes, which made me think 
very strongly that Hungary Budapest Medical Isotope Institute, which produces most of the medical isotopes for Europe, that that particular reactor may well be the one responsible. And it was actually mentioned in various reports from other agencies who look at the radiation that, that it could well be from a medical source because the iodine was uh, very specific. And this particular reactor, it collects the different isotopes and it's possible they either released old iodine-131 or it, there was a break in the, because it's a very old reactor, the collection system had some damage and, and a release happened because of that. Has there been any update on that information and is the release ongoing or did that seem to be a discrete incident that happened? This particular reactor has lots of discrete incidents and the Hungarians, uh, they're renowned in Europe, they're part of the EU, and they've actually pulled back from the transparency and anti-corruption policies that the EU are, are treaties that the EU are trying to bring. So that, that will give you some background to how the Hungarian government might deal with sort of a bad PR nuclear moment. Now, having looked at it, though, I would say yes, there doesn't seem to be any further releases since the uh, January period or certainly the start of February period from that area, uh, as far as I'm aware. That brings us to February, where there were several days when radiation spikes were recorded and yet there seems to be no coverage of it. There's been no accountability of it. And I know that you have done some heavy research into this to try and track it down. What have you found as to the source and where do we stand with it? To summarize the evidence, I went back onto Eurodep. I looked all over Sweden and Norway and Denmark. And I looked at the information that was deleted the data that was deleted from these. And what appears to have happened is that there's been a release from Holden in Norway. The winds were going south in the morning of the 17th. They've hit Sweden. Then later on that evening, the winds have turned north and east, which has pushed the plume further into Sweden, covering a larger area of Sweden. The wind also circulates around that area but I would say that the, the main deletions happened over about three days so the 17th there was a release the 18th there doesn't seem to be a release everything settled down then the 19th and 20th once again we see data being removed from the system and I think it was on the 20th that we saw a plume actually come back into Norway and hit the east coast of Norway by Oslo. And we also found that the deleted data, slightly less in the amount of hours, was also seen up the west coast of Norway. So that would have been Bergen up to Trondheim. That's the big long coast along the Atlantic Ocean. So certainly something happened. It was hidden. It's been deleted. We could wonder why it was deleted. Going back to your earlier question, 
Swedish nuclear regulatory people had released a statement on the 9th of March, only a couple of days ago now, saying that they very much appreciated Holden as part of the NKS, which is an agency formed with Denmark, Sweden, Finland and Norway, where they used the Holden research reactor to find out about uh, problems with fuel rods and things like this. And uh, so it did seem to me that certainly Sweden would be more than happy to help hide any plumes that were, were coming from Norway. What, if any, is the level of danger that is represented either by the release itself or the fact that the ICRP or other organizations or other countries are that willing to destroy or at least mask the data? That's an interesting question. From a health perspective, if we were looking at the sort of release that happened, uh, that I suspect happened in February, we would certainly want to see what the amount was. And we don't have that data. And nobody's admitting to this. And I have mentioned it to various people. The people I talked to were nuclear workers who came onto my YouTube channel. I also talked to another nuclear-connected person and he actually went to the IFE, the owners, and got a statement from them, which was refuting Bologna's original article, which said basically that there was uh, problems within the actual management and safety culture within Halden. The guy who did the report, Nils Bonner, and he was actually working with the Norwegian Regulatory Protection Association just before he got his job with Bologna. He's a nuclear engineer. He knows his stuff. But he actually had talked directly with the NRPA head who had told them that they had pulled the license. So now, of course, the IFE want to get their license back so they can start their reactor up. What, if any, continuing dangers do we know of or suspect because of this latest series of incidents, certainly at Halden? We could look at wider European issue. I would say that the lack of transparency, you know, with the Fukushima report, it said there should be more transparency and openness and what have you. But we're seeing certainly in Europe, Scandinavia is part of Europe, we're seeing a culture of deception, dare I say it, where data is being deleted off a public radiation map, which could help to stop these confusions that we see in the social media and, and would also allow the mainstream media to access information so they could track what's going on and then ask the relevant people the questions. Now, while they delete the data, none of that is happening. And then we have people saying, well, it's the Russians. Oh, it's, it's all to do with Holden. These are the sort of uh, stories that are going around on the social media. And, and they're very much incorrect. I had a lot of people come onto my YouTube channel and saying, oh, this is fake news. And I'm saying, no, it isn't, actually. I did my research. But the other 10 videos you've probably watched are fake news because they, they didn't do the research. They're just saying it's all to do with Holden all the way back from October. And I don't think that's the case. I think because the Norwegian Regulatory Protection Association were so much on the case, and they only did their report in February, and Bologna only did their press release in early March, we can see that there's been ongoing, uh, very close scrutiny of the system. Now, the February release is an issue, 
and it was done after the report when the Norwegian Regulatory Protection Association had made their decision that everything was seen to be settling down in the Holden reactor. So why that release happened, whether it was an allowed release or whether it was just something they sneakily done, I do not know. And that's the sort of question a journalist would like to find out about. As to the health effects of these things, well, there's an ongoing dispute around the world about the levels of radiation that is allowable. But we certainly know this iodine is not good for babies, pregnant women. It gets into food and milk. Uh, certain areas may be more profoundly affected when a plume goes by than others. It depends on rainfall and many other sorts of situations. So if we're looking forward and we're looking towards a nuclear industry that's uh, transparent and open, that's not happening in the way it should be happening. We need more transparency. We need more public engagement with these technologies so that we can feel better, we can report better, and so that we can feel safer. Nuclear Hot Seat's European correspondent, Sean McGee. Links to Sean's article and the source material used in pulling it together is available on nuclear-news.net. And of course, we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 299. This work was accomplished with the invaluable input of Hervé Courtois, Nils Bomer, Bruno Charuran, the Norwegian Radiation Protection Authority, or NRPA, CREROD, which stands for Commission for Independent Research and Information about Radiation, and a big shout-out to Bologna.org. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is listener-supported and relies on your donations to keep operating. If you, yes you, can help us meet our goals, please do what you can. Any amount is welcome. Consider a Starbucks donation of the equivalent of what you'd pay to take me out for a cup of coffee. It's a great way to get started. So don't wait. Do it now. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. Know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated, and you have my gratitude. Now for our featured interview. Nancy Faust is Communications Manager and Research Team Member at SimplyInfo.org, a not-for-profit research collective focusing on the Fukushima disaster. Simply Info holds and manages the largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster in the world. The group provides in-depth analysis of past and current events related to the disaster to develop a better understanding of what has taken place and to bring that understanding to the public. Every year since 2011, when the Fukushima disaster began, the group has published a report that serves as a fact-based ground zero for people committed to getting the story right. This year, their report came out just before last week's Fukushima anniversary, and it is a Bible of accuracy for anyone who wants to know what's really happening at Fukushima. Nancy and I spoke on Monday, March 13, 2017. Nancy Faust, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. The sixth anniversary report on Fukushima that was published by Simply Info is quite an amazing document. What is it, and why did Simply Info decide to create it? 
We've been doing an annual report every year since 2012. They originally started out just as a way to kind of give people that didn't follow the disaster on a day-to-day basis a way to really kind of understand what had transpired over the last year. And we've now been doing those every year since 2012. Have they been in this elaborate form? Because I remember seeing them in the past, but I don't remember it looking like brochure layout and photos and really well-placed visuals throughout. The report has kind of evolved over the years. The first report we did, you know, was fairly technical. It dealt with a lot of the known information about damage to the reactors and the known situation of the meltdowns at that point, with a few images kind of peppered in between it, and it was mainly just a plain PDF document. And over time, we've kind of evolved and made them a little bit more elaborate and more engaging to read, and we've tried to add some graphics of our own and some better ways to visually explain things each year. I have to admit that that's part of what I really appreciate because the technical information in particular I do not have an easy time with. And it's almost as if you translated it so somebody with a lesser understanding will be able to at least follow what it is you're talking about. Right. And every year that we do these reports, we try to do them to kind of two audiences. There are people that work in the industry, there are people that are anti-nuclear activists, people that are scientists that understand the deeper levels of information. But we also want to make sure someone who doesn't have that depth of scientific knowledge can still read this and understand what we're talking about and know what's going on. So we try to kind of make sure things have depth but also have kind of that superficial level where, hey, this is what we found out, this is what happened, here's a picture that explains it. Because many times you can talk about something very technical and it just sounds very abstract, but if you can show someone a picture or a drawing, says it's this thing over here that we're talking about and it's related to this other thing in this picture, it's so much easier for people to grasp what we're talking about. This was a major undertaking. The booklet itself is 65 pages in length. Who were the people who worked on it? Because I know this was not a solo effort by any stretch of the imagination by you. The members of the research team work on these reports kind of throughout the year. As we go, we kind of flag things that, hey, this is really important, this event that just happened, that needs to go into the report. We also go back and we review all of our Uh, our past reporting for the year and kind of determine what in there needs to go into that annual report. And then we sit down and we discuss what things are important, what things that transpired that people maybe didn't hear about but are really critical to what's going to happen next, either in the technical aspects or in the social and environmental aspects. And we we kind of go through and determine these are certain areas that we need to expound upon. And then we have kind of a collaborative draft process we go through. I'll develop an outline and then we go back and we review it and people make comments and you know it becomes kind of a, a, a group process till we get to the final draft and then I go through and put it into the final format to kind of the brochure format where you see it. Give us a sense of the expertise level of the people who work on this document. We have a core group of about six people that have been participating since 2011, and some have come on in more recent years as we've started working on aspects that they were interested in or or heard about the group. We have people from a variety of backgrounds. We have people that have worked 
in nuclear issue activism. We have people that have worked in nuclear engineering at the national labs. We have people that have been health physicists and work in scientific research. We have medical doctors. We have computer hardware technicians and engineers. And we oftentimes will reach out to people that don't actively work with us but are specialists in a certain field and we'll ask them if they can help us understand something better. So if we get something that is very limited to like atmospheric chemistry, we'll try to find someone that, you know, that's their specialty and if they're willing to go us and answer questions. So we have kind of this core group that has a pretty diverse background in technology, science, nuclear issues. And then we talk to people from all over the world asking them, hey, can you help us elaborate on what we're trying to understand with this? And you pass along the understanding in a very easily accessible way. You cover, it seems, an entire range of issues in the report. I'd just like to touch on a few of them so people could get a sense of what kind of information is there. One of the first is where you go into sarcophagus issues, which I found surprising because from everything that I have read and heard, a sarcophagus is not an appropriate solution to the problem at Fukushima Daiichi. Yeah, the sarcophagus information came out in some technical reports about six months ago, and it briefly hit the press in Japan and then kind of disappeared. The decommissioning authority tried to walk back the information saying, oh, well, you know, we're pulling it out of the report, and no, we're not really thinking about doing this. They were very sensitive to the kind of public outrage in Japan over the idea because for so long they had been saying, no, we can't just abandon the site. We do have to decommission it. We are going to remove the fuel. And then to see this idea of basically putting a cover building over the entire disaster site and leaving it, of course, completely enraged the people that have been out of their homes for six years. And the idea of a sarcophagus at Fukushima Daiichi is a fairly controversial topic because one of the main problems at that site is the groundwater that flows through the site and out into the ocean. And even though they've taken countermeasures to try to slow the groundwater from becoming contaminated and leaking to the ocean, that's a constant process. And if they abandon the site, it would mean that there's just more and more potential for all of that contamination to leak to the sea, for something to degrade over time and leak to the environment. And it's just a really bad idea, and it's really kind of, in essence, would mean they're giving up. In that explanation, you touched on something that I think is really important, and that is where do you source the information? What kind of resources do you have in order to learn this information and then figure out whether it's accurate or not? We source much of our information from technical reports that come out in Japan. These are reports that happen within the decommissioning authority. Sometimes they'll come from universities in Japan that are working on research in a specific topic. Sometimes it's information that comes out in technical documents that Toshiba or GE put out. So we have kind of this circle of participants in the decommissioning that we monitor and keep an eye out for these technical documents. And then we go through those. Many times it means someone's got to go through and machine translate pages and pages and pages, or if we have something that's very complicated, we have to send it to someone to manually translate it. So this is material that is not generally available to the public. 
it's not behind firewalls. It's not kept private, but it's very hard to find it. It's not something that's highly publicized. It's not something that's incredibly easy to find if you were to do a Google search, but they are public documents. But because of their technical nature, the press kind of tends to ignore them and focuses more on things like press conferences. Let's get back to some of the issues that are covered in the report. You went into the location of fuel debris, which is not how it's usually mentioned. People will talk about fuel rods or general radiation levels. What do you mean about the location of the fuel debris and how far does it go? Fuel debris is a term that started being in common use by TEPCO about two or three years ago. And these various groups that are helping them with the decommissioning and the research and development to do that work have started using this as kind of their common terminology to mean any form of the melted fuel. So any of the fuel rods that were in the reactors when they melted down and then mixed with the metal from the reactor vessel and concrete from the building, that's kind of considered fuel debris. So that's what we're talking about. And fuel debris is such a big deal because this is what's causing all of the radiation and all of the environmental contamination. So finding it is key to being able to hopefully in the future be able to retrieve it and put it into some form of isolation. There have been a lot of issues coming up about worker safety. What are just a few that you touch upon in the report? They're starting to find more and more problems with the workers that were there doing the initial disaster response. And these are the workers that the press kind of coined as the Fukushima 50, even though there were actually more than 50 workers. But these were the workers that were fighting the meltdowns, that were trying to do the immediate response after the disaster. And one of the very interesting things they found is they took this group of about seven workers who had had extremely high exposures during the initial meltdowns. And they tracked these workers over years, and they do a body scan on them every year to see where their radiation, their internal contamination of radiation was in their body. And there's a known formula for the body clearing radiation, most radiation out of the body. So they kind of knew what they would expect to see, you know, time after time after time as they scanned these workers. But they got to a certain point, and the radiation level stopped going down. And the researchers that were following them weren't sure why. Well, they went and started scanning just certain sections of their body, and they discovered that their lungs were contaminated. And that's where all the contamination that was still in their body was, was in their lungs. Upon further research, they found that these workers had inhaled very tiny particles of insoluble cesium. And what this is is it was radioactive materials from the reactors in very microscopic forms of glass. So they inhaled these tiny particles of glass into their lungs, and the body can't expel those. You can't quite cough them out. They don't pull into the bloodstream where the body could then process this out and expel it from the body. So these tiny little glass particles in their lungs are lodged in their lungs, and they can't remove them. So these workers will now have to deal with an ongoing radiation exposure to their body because of this inhalation. And this raised some very big concerns with, with our research team because there were many anecdotal comments from people who had been near the disaster site either before they evacuated or they were just outside of the evacuation areas like in Owaki and said that they were experiencing 
strange symptoms. Yeah, they were getting bloody noses. They felt like they had the flu. They were getting weird symptoms that almost mimicked radiation exposure, you know, like a high radiation exposure. But the government was saying, no, these radiation levels in these areas were not high enough that someone could have gotten that sick from being exposed. So they, it must be psychosomatic. But now we find that these workers on site were inhaling these microparticles of radioactive materials into their lungs. And so this raised some concerns with our research team that, you know, could some of the public have been exposed to some amount of this also? And if so, did this cause some of these early symptoms? And are there people that may potentially have longer-term radiation exposures than expected because they were exposed to these microparticles in the air? So it sounds like with this report, you are bringing up issues that certainly deserve to have more research done on them. Yes. As we go through and look at the, you know, the information that's come out over the year, we start seeing things like this, you know, that, well, these workers had a risk. Did this risk also extend to the public? So we may identify something that's a problem that needs to be researched, but having it actually get researched by someone with the access to medical data and large bodies of population willing to participate in a study, it starts becoming a little more complicated to go back through and get some actual data on it. Were there any surprises in what you discovered as this report came together? Probably the most concerning part was how taken aback the uh, decommissioning agency was with what they found in Unit 2 recently. In January, they sent a robot, a set of robots into Unit 2, and they found more damage than they expected and higher radiation levels than they expected. And this seemed to really cause everyone that was doing that research to take pause that, well, we're going to have to rethink what we're doing. But to our research team, none of it was extremely surprising. We expected that they were going to find some areas with extremely high radiation levels. And we expected that they were probably going to find some considerable damage and possibly fuel debris in the pedestal area below the reactor. So why they were so taken aback by something that we were almost expecting it was a little concerning, and we haven't quite sorted out why they seem to have not anticipated the more worst-case scenarios that we were assuming were probably the case. Is there anything that you feel hasn't been covered deeply enough by this report? One thing that we did notice within the last two or three weeks, the government of Japan has begun talking about completely reopening the entire evacuation zone in a couple of years. This would mean even the areas that were extremely contaminated during the disaster would now be reopened. And they've been making some interesting justifications for this. They've been claiming that radiation levels are low and that the radiation levels are acceptable. But what we're seeing from citizen groups and other scientific, more independent scientific research is showing that the radiation levels are not safe. The government has been using a rule of thumb of 20 millisieverts per year as an acceptable level of citizen exposure to justify opening up these evacuation zones. But that level of annual exposure is what is used to maximum out a nuclear worker. So you don't want to be exposing children to the same level of radiation you're exposing adult male nuclear workers to. So this is very problematic. 
Another problem that happens if you start having people move back near the disaster site is what happens if there's a large industrial accident at the site? What if there's a large radiation release? What if they have some sort of uncontrollable accident at the site while they're trying to remove all of this old fuel? You now have all this population nearby that's at risk. So this notion that they can move everyone back is kind of ill-advised. This is a long-standing question of mine. What was listed as an acceptable, put that in quotes, annual exposure rate before the Fukushima Daiichi disaster began? The ICRP radiation level for, for a citizen for annual exposure would be one millisievert per year. So now they're looking at, Japanese government is looking at allowing 20 millisieverts per year. So you can see this is a very big departure from what was considered acceptable public exposure before the disaster. That's the benchmark I've been looking for. I knew they'd raised it. I just didn't realize that they had raised it quite so drastically. And what do they say it is now without assuming they're going for 20? International standards are still considered to be one millisievert per year for the exposure of a citizen. Japan did try earlier to raise the annual exposure for children to 20 millisieverts per year back around 2012, and this had tons of public backlash. There were numerous groups, health groups, citizens groups, parents groups, saying this is completely unacceptable. And the government did eventually back off of that attempt. They had tried to do a five millisievert per year exposure level for a while as a, a benchmark with the government. And now, as far as the evacuation zone, it was supposed to be one millisievert per year, and then it was five, and now it's up to 20. So you can see it's been changing this back and forth on political whim. And now they're trying to go with this 20 millisievert per year so that they can use that to justify pushing people to return home, claiming that those radiation exposures are now acceptable. And this is all very arbitrary. The media, I think, would have great use and get great benefit from having access to this report. Right now, it's up on your website, and one can kind of do the equivalent of thumbing through with the little arrows. Is there a way for someone to get either a printed version of this booklet or is there an electronic version that can be downloaded as an ebook, or is there a PDF that people can print out? The book will be up within the next week on Amazon. We try to put all of our newer reports on Amazon so that someone can buy a printed copy if they need to, or at least get an ebook copy. And if we do talk to researchers who need a plain PDF copy of it, you know, we're willing to usually email someone a copy if they need one for their own use. I know that your site has one of the most ferocious copyright statements that I've seen, certainly on any nuclear site, protecting your content. If a member of the media or if any of us with our website wish to utilize any of this information, what is the best and most appropriate way to credit you? We have a pretty clear statement as far as what we consider fair use. And we had to do that because we had a number of websites that were just completely plagiarizing our content. And it kind of became a distraction for the work we're trying to do. And we make it clear that if someone wants to quote our work, that's completely permissible. If someone wants to republish it for some reason, they do need to contact us. And we usually go through that on a case-by-case -case basis. And we also do that because sometimes we do have 
permission to use someone else's content, and we need to go make sure we have their permission to release it to someone else. Nancy, give us the website so that people can find this very valuable and extremely factual and completely footnoted report. You can find the report at our website, which is www.simplyinfo.org. Terrific. Well, Nancy, we will continue to be in touch with you in the coming year and years of Nuclear Hot Seat for this extremely clear and fact-based, non-all-fact but real-fact information about the nuclear situation at Fukushima Daiichi and in Japan. Thank you so much for coming once again on to Nuclear Hot Seat. Great. Thanks for having me. Nancy Faust is Communications Manager and Research Team Member at simplyinfo.org. You can access the free Fukushima 6th Anniversary Report at simplyinfo.org. As of late March, you can purchase a copy on Amazon.com. And, of course, we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 299. Activist shout-out! Two petitions to sign and a really great article to take a look at. The first petition is the International Signature Campaign in support of the appeal of the Hibakusha, the atomic bomb survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for the elimination of nuclear weapons. It's a very moving statement that they make, and they're asking for your signature. We will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 299, as we will have links for the other two items I'm about to mention. The next one being a petition on change.org opposing the ratification of the Japan-India Nuclear Cooperation Agreement in the Indian Parliament. There is a lot of explanation here, but a major point is that India is not a party to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and yet it has twice conducted nuclear tests. The proposed Japan-India Nuclear Cooperation Agreement allows India to increase production of both its nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons. Moreover, India's neighboring country, Pakistan, is also not a party to the Non-Proliferation Treaty and also possesses nuclear weapons. It is obvious that this agreement will aggravate the nuclear arms race in the South Asian region. We'll have a link up. Just go there and sign it. And then there's that terrific article by Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear that appeared in Counterpunch on March 6th. The title is Fukushima Catastrophe at 6. Normalizing radiation exposure demeans women and kids and risks their health. She frames the nuclear discussion as a perfect example of alternative facts, gaslighting, and normalization of that which is absolutely not normal and then hones in on her area of expertise, which is the disproportionately high impact of nuclear radiation on women, children, and fetuses. Great article. We'll link to it. Here's today's final thought. Well, the media has had its yearly orgy of one story per media outlet on Fukushima, and now it wipes its hands of it for another year, or unless some story from over there is so big that it can't be ignored. But when it comes to nuclear issues, persistence of vision is a luxury most media organizations don't have. That's part of how the nuclear industry gets away with its spin, disembling, 
alt facts, meaning lies, and shirking responsibility for its actions. A reporter pulls a story lead off Twitter or Facebook or gets one from the assignment editor, then does a quick Google search. What does she or he find? Pro-nuclear spin pieces that have been search engine optimizationed and tagged to jam the first 47 pages of their Google search. Or they get smart and they whip on over to Wikipedia, where the hordes of nuclear PR cubicle drones, lavishly paid with the industry's ill-gotten gains, make certain that their take on the issues is what dominates. If you've got money and an agenda, it's very easy to manipulate Wikipedia and so many other information sources. Thus, informed, put that in quotes, by pre-spun perspectives, not suspecting or understanding how they've already been manipulated, reporters fresh to the nuclear story know, or think they know, how to handle their report, usually relegating the activist perspective to some minor add-on two-thirds of the way down the story, not the lead perspective. Because, of course, we who have honest concerns about nuclear safety are just being silly, aren't we? Well, the answer to that is no. But they never get the context, the larger story of an industry that practically invented the alt-fact universe. How else do you think the story got swallowed whole, that nukes are clean, green, and sustainable, when the only thing sustainable about them is the toxic radioactive waste that causes cancer and other illnesses for literally hundreds of thousands of years, we as a species should only live so long. So if you're a reporter following any aspect of the nuclear story, or if you're a motivated activist who really wants to dig down into the truth, get and read Simply Info's Fukushima 6th Anniversary Report. It's at least a place to start. And if you have a nuclear story where you're looking for leads or access to reliable, vetted information, contact us by email at info at nuclearhotseat.com and let you know where to find some solid footnoted source material that's probably buried on Google and eradicated from Wikipedia. At least you'll have the grounding to approach your story from a different perspective. And here's hoping you get around to doing it in time. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 14, 2017. Material from this week's program has been researched and compiled from Mainichi.jp, NHK, NukeResistor.org, Alliance for Nuclear Accountability, AnishInabekNews.ca, JapanTimes.co.jp, BBC.co.uk, Counterpunch.org, FBSBX.com, Change.org. Again, Sean McGee's report on European radiation spikes is available in written form at Nuclear-News.net. Then there's the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray. The creatively unfulfilled cubicle drones who grind out ghastly PR for world nuclear news. And a shout-out to the big-hearted planet protectors and peaceful warriors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook, which you are invited to come visit, join, like, and share our posts with your loved ones. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. 
We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor and attitude as possible, take a moment to send in a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the cure for global warming is not nuclear winter. So you've all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. <laughs> 